All right. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us this morning. I'm Todd Harrison. Uh, I'm the Director of Defense Budget Analysis and Senior Fellow uh, in the International Security Program here at CSIS. Uh, thank you all for joining us this morning for our panel discussion on what the budget deal uh, means for defense uh, and what are the prospects for defense reforms uh, in the coming years. Uh, I am uh, pleased to be joined by a panel of uh, true experts on the topic. Uh, to my left is Tina Jonas. Uh, she's the former DOD comptroller from 2004 to 2008. Uh, and uh, is also a senior advisor here uh, at CSIS in the International Security Program. Uh, she's also, uh, among many other jobs in the private sector, uh, in government, she's worked at the FBI as the comptroller there uh, at OMB, and on the House uh, Appropriations Subcommittee for Defense. Uh, to her left uh, is Christian Bros. Uh, he is the staff director for the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, he previously worked as a senior editor, editor at Foreign Policy, uh, and as a policy advisor and speech writer to two secretaries of state, uh, Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. Uh, and uh, on the end over here is uh, Steve uh, Koziak. He's the former uh, associate director for defense and international affairs at OMB from 2009 to 2014. Uh, and also we have some common heritage. He was vice president for budget studies uh, at my alma mater, uh, Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Uh, so, I want to kick off the discussion this morning. Uh, I've uh, asked all the, the panelists, instead of introductory statements, that we'll go right into some questions. I've got three questions I'm going to ask uh, each of the panelists, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A from the audience. All right. So, if we, uh, special effects there. Uh, if we go back to 2011, when uh, the BCA was enacted, the Budget Control Act. Uh, in spring of that year, just before the BCA uh, was enacted into law, the president submitted the FY12 budget request to Congress. Uh, and so the PB12 line that you see here on the top, uh, this is adjusted for inflation. That showed the base defense budget, not including war funding, growing to just over $600 billion a year uh, and then flattening out over the decade. Of course, we then had the Budget Control Act enacted in August of 2011, uh, and the post-Super Committee budget caps that were contained in that law uh, are what you see here in the yellow line on this chart. And so the difference between those two plans, uh, between what the Pentagon was planning in PB12 and what the budget caps would constrict DOD to over 10 years adds up to about a trillion dollar reduction. Of course, part of that is a, a reduction in planned growth. Uh, but that's the trillion dollar cut in defense that folks are, have been talking about ever since. Now, what's happened since then? In each successive budget request, uh, the line has come down closer to the Budget Control Act budget caps. With the exception of PB16, the most recent budget request actually goes up a little. It diverges a bit from the budget cap line. So the Pentagon has gradually adjusted its planning to get closer and closer to the fiscal realities of the Budget Control Act. Now, for its part, Congress has modified the budget caps three times. Uh, the first deal was the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012, which I think actually wasn't signed into law until January of 2013. Uh, that increased the budget cap for 2013. Uh, the Ryan Murray uh, Bipartisan Budget Act of 2013 uh, increased the budget caps for 2014 and 2015. And then just recently, uh, the, the budget deal that uh, was passed a few weeks ago increased the budget caps for 2016 and 2017. 
Uh, but notably, the original BCA budget caps remain in effect for 2018 to 2021, the last four years of the Budget Act. Um, and now, you know, Congress, of course, we triggered a sequester in FY13. We have not had a sequester that, since then because Congress has appropriated at the budget cap level. And presumably in FY16, they will do the same since we now have an agreement uh, to revise the budget caps up for FY16. Now, I put a little question mark there because we don't know exactly where we're going to end up because OCO was included uh, as part of this deal. Um, so. Starting off with the panel, I'm going to go down the line here, uh, starting with Tina. Uh, we want to talk about what does this budget deal uh, really mean for DOD, and specifically, you know, is this a new normal that we're getting into with these two-year budget deals, the Ryan Murray deal and now the latest deal? Uh, is OCO going to be part of future deals? Uh, do you think that's possible? And is it possible the next administration could get a four-year deal to finish out the rest of the Budget Control Act? So Tina, let's start with you. So a lot of questions in there, but I think uh, fundamentally the good news in this deal is obvious um, or more obvious predictability and a modicum of certainty for the program uh, officials and planners at the Department of Defense. Uh, everybody who has had experience with the Department of Defense, with the military, knows that there's one thing that they're really good at, and that is planning. Uh, I think, as you just articulated, the divergence between uh, the caps and where the planners were, um, you know, going back to the origination of the BCA, uh, that uh, obvious, it was obviously untenable for the long term. So I think the good news on this budget deal is, well, uh, everybody didn't get what they want. They got a good uh, portion of what they want, and I do believe it'll mean um, uh, greater cost efficiency as well for the department. Anytime you cannot plan, you, can't, uh, you cannot execute well, and uh, those variations in execution have been very problematic for the department. So I think uh, fundamentally, I'll answer that first question there, and then I don't know if you want to proceed down the <laughs> row and then come back to your next questions, but I do have some thoughts on the OCL. Well, let's, let's go ahead and go down that line. Okay. So in terms of OCO, do you think that that should be part of future deals? Do you think it will be part of it? Uh, uh, we, the threats around the world determine what we do ultimately in the national security space and are obviously reflected in policy and in budgeting. Uh, this past week has been a, a clear reminder that the national security imperatives are going to drive what we do. And the re relief valve has been uh, the contingency accounts. So I don't, while you can state certain goals, and I know the budget deal includes some, uh, my sense of it is uh, that maybe perhaps the gamesmanship that was going on with the OCO will, will uh, fade away, but the need for being able to adjust in current, uh, in real time to meet national security threats will never fade. Well, Chris, let's pick up on that. Um, you know, from your perspective on the Hill, uh, you know, do you think we, we're going to see a continuation of this pattern of two-year deals, of you know, using OCO to offset for some reductions in the base budget? What do you think? I think historically, yes. I mean, that's been uh, the model that we've been employing here, these kind of two-year agreements. Um, the obvious kind of big X factor is the election and what happens with a new president and a new Congress. 
um, I think there'd be a lot of hope for those of us who look at this through the lens of the defense budget that there would be the possibility to strike uh, sort of a broader four-year deal and actually address the drivers of federal spending, which is not discretionary uh, spending, it's, it's the mandatory side. Um, I think that's something that a new president will have to, will have to take on. And the deal that we have now, uh, I think, is mostly good for this year, um, less good for next year. And uh, to your question about OCO, um, you know, I think the Paris attacks are yet another reminder that uh, you know, we are going to continue to be involved in uh, events out of, uh, out of the country. Um, the pace of these threats is picking up. So OCO will inevitably be part of our budgeting. Um, I think the question is more to what extent is it going to be used to offset things that uh, you know, arguably should be done inside the, uh, the base budget. Um, and obviously, I mean, look, <laughs> you look at the graph, it's, it's not an optimal way to budget. Um, but I think you know, people just need to realize that you know, this is the product of a Congress that has been fighting amongst itself over these issues now for some years. And you know, before we make a virtue out of budget stability, uh, you know, I would say that uh, budget shortfalls are probably worse. And I sort of make this point back to our friends in the department all the time, which is if you wanted budget stability, then the BCA was the best thing that ever happened to you. It was 10 years of budget stability that you could have planned around uh, and built programs around, but you know, that's obviously not optimal. So I think what we need to recognize is that, you know, to me, the good thing about this deal is that uh, these fights that we've been having uh, are, are coming out increasingly in favor of those who believe we need uh, more defense spending, um, and, and that's ultimately what we saw this year, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that will continue into next year. All right. And Steve, at OMB, of course, you had to struggle with OCO and how to define it, and what counts as OCO, what counts as base budget, uh, and of course, struggling with, you know, fitting within the budget cap. So what's your take on it, uh, especially thinking to the next administration? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, OCO is obviously going to continue to the extent that it's driven by world events and the need, you know, temporary and extraordinary expenditures, which is what it was always intended to do. So to the extent that there is new crises that develop that need to be responded to, um, you know, it's, it's supposed to be used for that. So it could go up, it could go down, depending on sort of what happens in the world. So that part of OCO, I think, is, you know, that's sort of normal kind of OCO. Um, I think the question is, what's going to happen with, I mean, OCO has in the past been used at times to include stuff that really belongs in the base budget. Um, uh, for you know, a number of years, you can point to where that happened over the past decade. Um, and it's always had a little bit of in it, in it, and people debate exactly how much in it that really belongs in the base. But this was the first time where you have a deal where it explicitly says, we got $8 billion here that we don't need for temporary and extraordinary expenditures. We don't need for conducting military operations somewhere around the world. It's stuff that we, we just can't get a deal to put in the base, and that's explicit. So the question is, will that continue? I think it probably will continue um, because in May, you, know, you can see a scenario where you get a grand bargain where you lift the caps, and we have, you know, I, I mean, caps to my mind are, are fine. It's just having sensible caps is the, is the key. Um, and I think you, could, you, know, you can foresee a, 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 an opportunity to get a new grand bargain that has raised the caps and you don't have to play games with OCO, you don't have to use the OCO gimmick anymore. But absent do, getting that, and I think the prospects for getting a grand bargain are pretty slim going forward myself, but um, you know, it's possible. But absent that, I think as long as you're making two-year, one-year deals and kind of incrementally dealing with this, it's, it, the use of OCO as a gimmick to you know, circumvent the caps and help the base is is pretty um, uh, 
uh, it's too tempting to probably avoid going forward on some level. Now, whether it's $8 billion a year or you know, 30, $38 billion a year, I mean, I think at some point it becomes hard, but I think um, it'll, it'll, it'll remain in there. As long as we don't have another new grand bargain or the caps don't run out, um, it'll, it'll remain there. Okay. And so we talked a bit uh, about budget stability. Uh, and so that's something the department has lamented all along. But as you said, Chris, that the BCA actually provides you incredible stability if you were to stay at those budget caps levels. I think really the instability, though, has been the difference between what the Pentagon has been planning for, and they are great planners, to your point, uh, what they've been planning for and what they've been getting each year. And so if you actually go back to FY10, we started seeing pretty significant reductions between what DOD was requesting and what they were actually getting. So a $6 billion reduction in FY10, $21 billion in FY11, $23 billion in FY12. Uh, then we get into the sequester in FY13, $30 billion reduction compared to what was planned, uh, another $30 billion in FY14. But then we get to FY15. That's when we had the Ryan Murray deal. Uh, that was the second year of the Ryan Murray deal. And so the administration submitted a budget request that was basically at the budget cap, and that's what they got from Congress. So no uh, reduction in that year. And now in FY16, uh, we're actually looking pretty good. When you include the extra OCO funding, it depends on how the appropriators use it, uh, but it may be as little as uh, a $3 billion reduction in DOD's share. Uh, of the budget caps if they got all of the extra OCO funding. Could be as much as a $5 billion reduction, but still pretty close and nothing like the 20 to $30 billion reductions we've seen in previous years. So the question now is in the FY17 request that the Pentagon is working on, uh, are they going to do as they did in 2015 uh, and submit a request uh, that keeps to the deal, keeps to the revised budget caps, or are they going to go over it again? Uh, and for Congress's part, are they going to stick to the deal in FY17, or are they going to seek to revise it again? Now, I wanna, I'll start on the other end this time, since, Steve, you've been on the administration side of this. Um, do you think that the FY17 budget is going to stick to the agreement and stick to the deal? Well, I mean, I guess the question is whether they will do something like they did. I mean, they, I, I expect they will submit a budget that, at its core, is consistent with the, with the budget agreement. Um, uh, whether they will have something like the Opportunity Growth and Security Initiative that, you know, if we were going to go beyond this agreement, sort of what would we provide again? That's possible. I think it's less likely than it was um, when they did it last time because this is a deal they really negotiated. It's not something that the Hill negotiated and they signed up to, sort of. So I think it's less likely. So my guess would be that the 17 request will be consistent with the, uh, with the agreement. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Um, I, I can't speak to what the administration is planning. Um, <laughs> what about Congress? With, with respect to Congress, um, Look, I, I think that where we will end up uh, as we begin the budgeting for next year is probably fighting about moving that top line up. Um, I mean, if you look at it in terms of where you go from 16 to 17, you're actually decreasing. Um, that's not what I think uh, we had hoped for. We'd, we'd hoped to see real growth. Um, the other factor which I think could play into this in an interesting way is the election. And I think you, you already see presidential candidates on both sides arguing for a higher defense top line and the sort of mantra that um, most have been employing is getting back to that FY12 uh, top line. Um, I think it's pretty difficult to do in uh, FY18 if you don't have some pretty significant growth in 17. Um, so I, you know, and then you sort of add in what's happening in the world, you know, changing the uh, force presence in Afghanistan, attacks in Paris, you know, um, many other things that will play out in the next six to eight months. 
my assumption is that we will be having this argument once again uh, next spring over uh, the need for a higher top line uh, for FY17. So you think Congress is going to push for even more in FY17? Well, just to be clear, I mean, this is not going to be a unanimous, uh, you know, voice in the Congress, but my assumption is the Chairman McCain's and the Chairman Thornberry's and, uh, you know, other members of the committees um, will absolutely be arguing for, for greater funding for defense. All right. Tina, how do you see this shaking out? Uh, I'm not sure that I have much to add uh, to what uh, Steve and Chris just uh, said. However, um, what what Chris just articulated is the, uh, the cumulative impact of the lack of stability um, over the previous years. So uh, a number of people, and clearly, obviously, the chairman of the Armed Services Committees would be most clued in to the overall impact and uh, the detrimental effect of um, previous cuts. Uh, it is cumulative. You look at what's going to uh, there are major programs that uh, are obviously on track, but there are those that have challenges. Readiness has uh, always challenges in readiness. And again, the, the wild card is what does our national security uh, posture look like? Uh, what is the national security uh, threat picture look like? And that determines, I think, uh, the basis on, upon which uh, the chairman would argue for a higher uh, potential top line. Now, having said that, uh, pragmatically, um, there are many voices in Congress that will say stick to the deal. And Chris knows that better than anybody. But um, if I had to guess, it is, a, you know, it's going to be a political year. Things will be exciting. But in the end, uh, you know, my prediction is we'll come up uh, someplace around where the budget deal, um, uh, the marks in the budget deal in the next year. Maybe a little fudging here or there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so now we've talked about the easy stuff, the top line, right? And uh, it's easy to talk about, you know, how much we spend on defense. Uh, just as important, I think you would all agree, is how we spend it, what we spend that money on. And a big issue has been defense reform. Uh, this year, Congress tackled uh, acquisition reform. I don't think it's it's finished by any means. Uh, acquisition reform will never be a finished business. They also tackled military retirement reform. Uh, that was part of the NDAA, so you know that that at least is off the table for some period of time, I would think, uh, to let the new system get started. What hasn't really been tackled uh, is healthcare reform, military healthcare, uh, and so what you see here, I took these charts from CBO. Uh, the chart on the left is adjusted for inflation in 2015 dollars, and it shows the growth in military healthcare costs broken out by different types uh, of military healthcare costs. Uh, over uh, the past several years, several decades, and projected growth going out into the future. Uh, and so there's a lot of reasons, of course, that military health care costs grew in the 2000s pretty significantly. Uh, one, of course, was new and expanded benefits like TRICARE for Life that you see there, and some of the pharmaceutical benefits uh, were new, uh, and so now those are added to the cost. TRICARE for Life, if you're not familiar with it, it's a, a Medicare wraparound policy uh, that applies to military retirees uh, over the age of 65. So it's a pretty narrow set of people that receive the benefit, uh, but it's been consuming about $10 billion a year in the base defense budget to pay for that future benefit uh, for current service members. Uh, but another big, and of course also healthcare cost in general, the overall, overall economy grew during this time as well, and so DOD was not immune from that. 
But another big factor has been the number of people in the military healthcare system. On the right-hand side there, you can see that there are almost 10 million Americans eligible for the military healthcare system. And this is not including veterans healthcare, which of course, veterans healthcare is funded through the VA. Uh, that's actually about a similar amount, about 60 billion a year uh, in cost for veterans healthcare, but that's not part of DOD's budget. It's not part of our discussion today. But just the cost that's within DOD's budget, uh, about 10 million beneficiaries, the majority of them are military retirees and their dependents. Uh, only about 15% of the beneficiaries are actually active duty service members. Uh, so this time I'll start with you, Chris, sure. uh, since uh, you're on the Hill. Do you think there's any appetite uh, to tackle something like TRICARE reform uh, this go around? Uh, personally, I do. Um, I think that you know, what, we, what we showed in this year's bill was that uh, you know, both uh, chairman of the Armed Services Committees as well as the ranking members uh, worked very hard on the question of military retirement. Uh, and there was an explicit understanding when we began that that uh, that was going to be the focus for this year and, and the military health question was going to be a focus for FY17. Um, in the course of that conference, you know, there were some issues that, uh, uh, that we dealt with that pertained to defense health and I think the consensus was uh, you know, let's bracket that and, and really look at it holistically in FY17. So uh, I personally believe that there is a lot of appetite uh, on the part of the, uh, the big four, so to speak, uh, as well as a lot of other members on the HASC and the SASC uh, to really take a systemic look at the defense health system for the reasons that you say, as well as, you know, the qualitative reasons about uh, finding ways to improve people's experience of, uh, of the defense health system. And I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, so, you know, judging simply by the, you know, the, the willingness and sort of the eagerness of uh, the leadership of the committee to tackle this, I believe that, uh, you know, that there's a lot of opportunity to make headway on this next year, even in an election year. Do, do you think that there's a, a, a unique opportunity in the lame duck session right after the election to come back and put some of this in the NDAA and pass it at that point? My, my hope is that we will have the NDAA done long before the lame duck. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll stick to that for now. I think uh, right. you know, our hope is very much to have the defense bill uh, conferenced into the president before we end up uh, in a lame duck session. So you're going you're gonna to get it done by July this year, right? Well, <laughs> we can always hope. Well, Tina, you were, you were comptroller uh, during a good part of this growth, so, you know, you had to experience it and deal with it. What are the challenges here? So, uh, in addition, I spent a few years at a as a CEO of a healthcare company, so That's just right. a, a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, there are clearly opportunities, and I'm glad to hear Chris say that the, there is appetite and initiative and will on the part of the committees to confront uh, this issue. It is emotional. Um, I am married to a Marine, so I will, he's retired, but, uh, but it is emotional uh, for families. It is emotional uh, on many levels, but it is something that uh, if you take a look at some of the recommendations, for example, of the um, Military Reform Commission, I think they came up with some great recommendations, including moving to some commercial plans uh, for active duty families that would allow for a greater savings. I think they projected about 26 billion in savings uh, in, in order to uh, enhance the benefit, the quality, and the care that our military families get and the service members. And then conversely, you have to measure and work through, and Chris knows this well, how do you 
take care of the all-important piece of uh, military medical readiness. And they recommended the Joint uh, Readiness Command, whether that's where uh, the hill will end up, um, who knows, but uh, that would add about a billion and one in costs. But I think the two concepts that they raised are good, and I think one of the realizations I'm sure the commission took this very much into consideration are the types of things that commercial uh, businesses, the commercial uh, insurance sector is, the tools that they are uh, putting in place, including non-monetary incentives to people's health, uh, and other tools that just are, they're absolutely must-dos in this realm if you want to save any additional money and come out with better outcomes. So I'm actually thrilled to hear that Chris is uh, positive. And again, having said that, there will be all types of, uh, the military service organizations will be very intently tuned into this. Some are in favor of some of these reforms, others are not, but I would venture to guess that at the end of it, if just like they, the uh, committee took up the concept of retirement, uh, if you said we're gonna come up with a better outcome, people will say, yep, we're for it. Uh, and I thought it was a, a bit ingenious for them to propose uh, a basic allowance for health care. Uh, the military is very familiar with the basic allowance for housing. Uh, people know how that works and how it can work. The models of FEHBP and the model that OPM uses as a program manager for multiple commercial uh, plans, I think, works very well. So again, I do not know what the committees will entertain, but I think the, the commission put out some very interesting proposals that would be appealing. So Steve, you've been a, a veteran of these battles as part of the administration. You know, uh, are you uh, pessimistic or optimistic about um, this? Well, I think I'm, I mean, relative to sort of the last many, many years, I'd say I'm relatively optimistic. I mean, I think you have to look at the uh, NDAA and think we did, a, and I did a lot this year. I mean, for, uh, uh, you know, and I think a lot more than, you know, if I look back when, when we worked to set up the commission, uh, I think it's, you know, done really well. Um, the, um, and I think it shows that the administration and Congress, that I mean, helped greatly by the commission, can, you know, can even in this environment work together on something as sensitive as that. And so I think that's, that's all to the good and does, um, and, I, and I think both the administration and Congress have sort of indicated that 2017 is more of a, a year for, you know, we did a lot, in, a lot in 16 and hopefully we'll do more in 17 and healthcare is more of a 17 agenda thing. Um, you know, on the other hand, so I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I'm genuinely optimistic that something could happen. On the other hand, obviously it's an election year, um, it's, uh, it's a much more complicated area. It's harder to legislate than, than is retirement. Retirement, we have sort of models for how you might do it, and, and, you know, it's, and they sort of adopt it, you know, kind of manipulating that relatively simple model, we're able to come up with something. So I think it's a tougher, for a variety of reasons, I think it's tougher, and it's an election year. So, you know, I wouldn't hold your breath, but, I, but again, I think, um, you know, it's, and it's certainly good to, to hear that uh, Chris thinks um, something very doable. All right, and so before I open it up uh, for questions for the audience, so you can go ahead and get your uh, questions in mind. I got one final question, BRAC, and this may not take that long. Uh, so, <laughs> base realignment and closure. Um, so, you were there during the 2005 BRAC. Um, I'm sure you got some scars from that. Yeah. What do you think, uh, first of all, do we need another BRAC? Is now the right time? Uh, and do you think Congress will ever get around to approving another BRAC? Well, I'll tell you, I'm smiling because I see my dear friend Ray Dubois, who was uh, <laughs> lived with me through that process. Uh, 
I would simply answer uh, with this. It is always, in my judgment, a good thing to review uh, the infrastructure that you have. Is it needed or is it not needed? If it's needed, fund it. If it's not needed, uh, get rid of it. Now, that's very um, simple to say and very hard to do. I think I received more calls on the last BRAC round from more governors than I'd ever met in my entire life before that. But, but I do think um, getting a handle on some of these larger issues, like the health care piece, the acquisition reform that was just uh, legislated, let's see what some of those savings produce. Um, I, am, uh, I couldn't make a prediction on BRAC. But I would say, if on general, uh, generally, if it is needed, uh, I think the, the Congress uh, would probably entertain it. But if it's not needed, obviously, they're going to have some objections to it. So um, I, won't, I won't, uh, won't make the full prediction on that, but that's my just thought there. So. Chris, uh, what, do you, what do you think? Are there, is, this, is this even the right time politically for BRAC? So, you know, as I remind myself constantly, no one elected me dog catcher, so I'm not going <laughs> to uh, stray into what, what will happen or won't happen. My, my sense is that there are two reasons this has not happened. I mean, there's the uh, lingering feelings over how the 2005 round went, and there are some disagreements over what that infrastructure um, uh, cost actually looks like. And I think in this year's NDAA, there's a, there's a requirement that the department do an assessment of its infrastructure holdings. Um, so that there's an ability to you know, try to get on one sheet of paper as to what, what is actually out there, what the SECDEF believes is excess, um, and, and be able to look at this a little bit more objectively and begin to sort of take some of the politics out and say, do we have a problem, do we not have a problem, what kind of a problem do we have? I think that's all preliminary work that has to happen prior to getting into uh, a round. Yeah, I guess part of the challenge too is the, you know, the size of the force is in flux, that you know, we're going through a downturn, we're planning to reduce you know, the size of the Army, Marine Corps, and restructure Air Force and Navy, and so it's uncertain right. what, what exactly do we need in terms of infrastructure going forward. Um, so you gotta know that before you know if you have excess. Steve, uh, what well, do you I think? Well, I think the last point you made is a, is a good one, an important one. Um, I mean, there is, I think, considerable uh, disagreement over, over what we need uh, right now. But, uh, you know, I think clearly a BRAC loan would be a good thing. I think whether or not, it's almost, I mean, it's related to the size of the force, but there's, there's you know, getting mixed right and everything as well. So I think even if you were to have something where you, you know, you don't make additional cuts or whatever, I think it makes sense to have a BRAC loan. I think it's, you know, it doesn't strike me as likely to get enacted um, in an election year. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's open it up for questions from the audience. Uh, Mitzi, right here. I'm Mitzi with the Naval Postgraduate School. Last month I was in Cuba, and one of the persons on our trip said, you know, it'd be really interesting if, in fact, we close Guantanamo, if we could turn it into a national park. I thought it was an interesting idea. And it could be run both by the Cubans and the US, and then eventually to the Cubans. From your view of the political world, would that be a possible solution? Well, any chance of closing Guantanamo Bay anytime soon? <laughs> I guess I'll take this one. Yeah, why don't you take um, it? <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would start by pointing out that thankfully the Senate Armed Services Committee does not have jurisdiction over national parks. Um, <laughs> from, from the standpoint of closing Guantanamo, I think, you know, look, what, what uh, 
Congress has asked the administration for is a plan to do it. Um, the president communicated on day one of his administration that he wanted to do it, and the response has been, got it, show us your plan for how you're going to do it. Um, we're still waiting for that plan, and we'll take a look at that and assess it, and you know, the Congress will make legislative decisions on the authorities and prohibitions on transfers and things uh, that have been in law for a few years, uh, I think in the course of next year's bill. Sydney. Oh. <laughs> Multiple microphones. Uh, Sydney Freakberg, Breaking Defense. Uh, about the BRAC position, uh, and this is primarily directed at you, sir. Uh, my impression is that in past years, Congress basically forbade the Defense Department from even conducting a study of maybe they could do a study of what infrastructure there might be out there. So I get the impression that to actually say, okay, go out and at least assess the infrastructure is a major shift, a major breaking of the ice uh, in Congress, as opposed to don't even count the infrastructure because you might then use it to you know, justify a background later on. Uh, but I'm, I'm misreading that. I'm reading too much into that provision. I don't know if I'd call it a major shift. Uh, I mean, in terms of what previous Congresses have done and why, I mean, I won't speak to that. I think from, from the standpoint of this Congress, there was a desire to, you know, have a more objective understanding of what we're talking about. Um, you know, what, what that looks like and uh, the questions I think that Todd raised about uh, force structure and, and force shape uh, bear on that, and that was part of what was required to be assessed um, in terms of uh, what the SecDef's view of this was, as well as what um, he would define or, or look to define as excess infrastructure, and I think there'll be probably a healthy debate over that too. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a major shift. I think it's more of a desire to, you know, uh, get a little bit more detail from the department as to the claims that they continue to make. <clears throat> excuse me about uh, the need for a background. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts on the panel? Anyone else want to touch Brack again? <laughs> All right. Any other questions from the audience? Let's see. Some gentleman over here. Hi there, Nigel Sutton, uh, Orbital ATK. Uh, Todd, look, you, on your view graphs, you didn't dig, uh, you know, dig a little deeper into the R and D and procurement accounts. Uh, question to your panel and, and to you is, where do you see pressures on the out years in the FIDIP on the R&D and procurement accounts? Sure. Yeah, so who wants to start with that? We know we've got this modernization bow wave in the works, nuclear forces, conventional forces. Um, Steve, I'll put you well, on the Well, I mean, spot. I think, the, think? The, you know, the, the overall, uh, one of the key tensions always, obviously, is between operations and support costs, including compensation, military personnel costs, and health care. Um, and the acquisition space. And generally, when things go really well uh, for the defense budget, uh, the acquisition programs benefit. And when they go really badly, they're the first to, to get cut. I think we're in a period now where it's a, it's a I'm not sure how, how uh, you know, I think we're in, we're in a period now where we're, we're looking at relative stability to what we've had over the, you know, in, 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 in recent years. And probably the upside is, you know, we're probably like, more likely to have some upside than, than downside um, on that. But I don't think we're in a, uh, you know, when acquisition tends to do really well when you have a sudden dramatic increase in funding for the top line and do really poorly when you have a sudden 
downturn, a dramatic downturn uh, in, in funding. And I don't think we're in either of those periods. So I think we're going to see sort of little by little, um, you know, it, 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 so it's a harder thing to sort of predict, I think, than, than, it, than, if we're, when, than when we're experiencing one of those major swings. Um, but I think the overall tension, again, is that uh, if you hold on to force structure, uh, and I think there will be some temptation to do so, um, because it looks like things are perhaps a little bit better, uh, and you don't make uh, major changes to, to health care, uh, and I don't think we're going to make, I'm not sure we're going to make dramatic changes, even if we make major changes there. I think it's going to be hard to see a major plus up in the acquisition area, basically, going forward. But I mean, it's certainly better than where we are, and, it's, and the prognosis looks better than it did you know, a short time ago, I would say, but um, I, I don't see a, a, uh, a major new buildup, I guess. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, and so, Tina, when you were in the Pentagon as comptroller, you know, we did see a pretty big increase in acquisition spending, but a lot of that was driven by war-related costs. That is correct, but also you had a change in administrations, and that's the one thing I, Chris mentioned it earlier. I think that is the next, um, if you will, check on uh, what the policy is going to be, whether you uh, add force structure, whether you add additional uh, capability and in the um, investment accounts, those are going to be decisions that are going to come immediately for the next administration. And so I would say, um, you know, to Steve's point, uh, that might be the next opportunity for a larger uh, tranche of funds. Uh, but again, it depends on the policies of the new administration. It depends, quite frankly, very much, and Steve knows this well, and I do too as a former OMBer. Uh, the economy is going to make a big difference. Um, so if we're uh, charging along and uh, things are, we're motoring along and feel pretty good and we've, we've come to some agreement and feel good about where we are on the debt and deficits, uh, you could have some adjustments there. But, but I, in general, I think um, right now, I think we've got a pretty clear path forward. We see generally for the next few years where we're, where we're going to be. So, Chris, in thinking ahead to the next administration, so about a year from now, we'll you know who that's going to be. Uh, what are some of the major acquisition issues they're going to have to deal with? Well, I think to the questioner's point, you know, just dealing with the current programs of record are going to be challenging. You know, on the nuclear modernization front, the Ohio replacement and what that does to the shipbuilding account, uh, you know, when you finally hit the ramp on the F-35. Um, just, just absorbing that, I think, is going to be considerably challenging. And that's not even to get into the questions of where should we be going in terms of increasing the size of the Navy, uh, you know, what we should be looking at as far as R&D to have, you know, if we're going to have a meaningful third offset strategy. Um, I think these are all areas that uh, we need to be looking at to say nothing of uh, the question of uh, force structure within the Army and the Marine Corps. I think there's a lot of concerns. Uh, especially as we look at the kinds of challenges we're seeing in the world right now uh, that we may have uh, reduced or be on a path to reducing uh, those forces too much. Um, so, so beginning to sort of move back up in terms of overall end strength for, uh, for the Army in particular, uh, I think is also a question the new president's going to have to wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, to your question, I look in the, the Air Force's aircraft acquisition budget, just in particular, just to pick on one particular line. And so, you know, in the mid-2020s, we're on track to have the tanker at full rate production, F-35A at full rate production, the bomber ramping up to full rate production. Those are the Air Force's top three stated priorities. Uh, that's hard enough alone, but then you add to it, the Air Force is planning a new trainer aircraft. They're planning J-STARS um, 
replacement, a new presidential aircraft replacement, and it, you know it starts to add up. And it, I think it's going to be a real issue. I don't know. I don't know how it all adds up in the end. Steve, well, I was going to. So I think uh, I think you and Chris may both made this point, but I, I think what we're looking at here is you know ideally being able to sort of afford something that looks like the current plan, more so. I don't want to put words in people's mouths. Maybe that's not what you're saying, but more so than adding to the current plan. I think a, a good, a good, um, and, and maybe making trade-offs within that plan. But I mean, um, uh, you know, I think a good outcome relative to where, you know, what the outlook has been. I think for the past few years is that we're able to get something. We're able to, when we look at the current plan, we're able to actually buy those things that are in the current plan or something like that. Um, I think the idea that we're going to be buying a lot more uh, stuff is probably. Um, uh, you know, it could happen, but I, I wouldn't bank on it. And I guess I'd also add just more broadly that I, you know, I mean, I do think the, you know, the, I was really happy to get this, get the uh, the deal this year, and a two-year deal, and it's a good deal. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's, you know, substantial, um, substantial increase. Certainly in 16, it gets you to about, gets about, uh, you know, it's five billion dollars below the request when you take into account the OCO and the, the base addition. So it's a, it's a good deal. But I, I, you know, I wouldn't presume that we're sort of out of the woods and we have nothing but. You know, I think every year or every two years, it's a question of whether we'll get another deal. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're in a, and it will depend on how the election goes and, and, and all of that, but I, I, I don't think we've entered a period where we can assume that, you know, that we'll get good deals every two years and we're kind of set and things are, we're going on an upward path. I mean, I think we're not going to go on a downward path. I think there's a good chance we'll have additional deals in that, but I mean, if, I guess from my perspective at least, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't get too, uh, paint too rosy a picture about things going forward. So it kind of makes long-term planning Could hard. Just add a point. I mean, again, I, I guess I'm an optimist, but I, I tend to think that the course we're on is inadequate. And I think that will be a significant point in next year's election. And I think you'll see whoever emerges on both sides um, arguing over that question. And I mean, to your point, Todd, you mentioned uh, the, 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 the shortfall in aviation. I mean, you see it in the Navy, you see it in the Air Force, that they do not have the capacity that their plans call for. And that's on the current path. So, I mean, my sense is that you're going to have candidates of both parties arguing for, uh, you know, may maybe not, uh, you know, sort of a, a once in a generation kind of build up, but a build up beyond what the program of record is currently. Um, and the notion of getting back to the FY12 budget, um, which, you know, I always remind people was FY12. You know, a lot has happened between then and now. Uh, and, and, those events tend to justify probably a need for greater defense spending, not less of it. So I think politically it's going to pull in that direction. Um, whether or not we get there, whether or not a new president will be able to strike uh, a grand bargain, as he said, um, you know, we'll leave that for later. But um, I, I think to me that's where, that's where the energy of this election will take us. Well, I guess, you know, the only thing I would, I would, I guess, caveat that a bit with, I mean, I, I think you can make a strong case, I think people will make, and I think people on both parties have been making a case for years to add to, the, add to defense. Certainly the administration hasn't, certainly the Republicans on the Hill have been, but I think, the, you know, an important thing to remember is that this isn't about defense, this is about the overall budget. This is about taxes. Do you raise taxes? Are you are raising taxes off the table? Do you have enormous tax cuts? Do you scale back Social Security and Medicare, or do you leave Social Security and Medicare? Do you have parity on the non-defense side, where you know, a third of non-defense discretionary spending goes for security programs, international affairs spending, the VA budget, Homeland Security? Um, so it's a tough overall you know, budget package. So it's not a question of do people think we should be spending more on defense. That's an important element of it, but it is a much broader uh, a broader package we're looking at here, and you know we've had I think you know 
I think people agree that we need a, you know, I think both Democrats and Republicans agree we need more money for defense. It's just a question of how does that fit into the overall package and what's, what are the priorities relative to taxes, for example, or mandatory spending? And then, you know, then it starts getting to be a, a tougher to kind of predict where things are going, I think. Tina. Well, and just to that point, and I, it's obvious to most, um, but the impact of interest rates um, are going are gonna to be a factor. And when the uh, gurus at OMB sit down and decide, gee whiz, what does that overall budget look like? Uh, clearly, uh, what we're spending on interest on the debt is a big deal. And, um, and again, we don't know what the future looks like in terms of the economy. We have our uh, we have projections now, but I think that will impact the discussions on defense, and I ex would expect it to uh, in the next five years. Well, yeah, and so on that point, if interest rates go back up to historically normal levels, I think OMB predicts that uh, by 2020, we'll be spending more on interest on the national debt Correct. than we do on defense. Chris? I was just going to say, I don't mean to belabor the point, but... Uh, I don't think we've had a consensus that we need to spend more on defense. I mean, I think to the extent that we do now, it's, it's pretty shaky, but the trend has been over the past few years, you know, from my standpoint, heading in the right direction. And I think the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have a problem. Um, I think we're getting there. I mean, when you see 150-odd members of the House of Representatives uh, send a letter, Republican members send a letter to their own leadership saying, uh, you know, we want to see the FY16 budget funded at the president's request, and we're not going to support a year-long CR. Um, I mean, that wasn't thinkable three, four years ago. Um, and again, I think that as you look to the next, year election, next year's election, um, spending less on defense doesn't strike me as a winner. Um, I think that whomever emerges is going to be beginning to gravitate around that consensus, and you know, much as I hate to say it, I think events in the world are probably going to bolster it. All right, other questions? Yep, Otto. Otto Kreischer with Sea Power Magazine. We've, we've talked around it, you know, the nuclear um, uh, issue. Two, the two big, big things coming up, a replacement for the Ohio-class uh, boomers, you know, and then the new strategic bomber. There's going to be this major clash between the Air Force and the Navy as to who gets, who gets the money for that. And, you know, the budget the way it is now, you can't fund both of those without cutting something else. What, what's your perspective on how we're going to handle the issue of replacing those two parts of the uh, triad? All right, so uh, Ohio-class replacement versus uh, long-range strike bomber. Who's going to win, or do they have to be in opposition? <laughs> Maybe Chris wants to. Um, look, I, I think we need both of them. Uh, I still believe in the triad, and I think that we need to, uh, we need to fund both of these programs. Um, but again, I think it just comes back to, you know, we need more money for defense. Um, you know, we can't allow the, the Ohio replacement to swallow the entire shipbuilding budget, um, because I think there's a lot of other things that we need to be doing in shipbuilding uh, above and beyond ORP. And it strikes me that this is, a, you know, again, a reason why the current funding levels are inadequate. Steve, there's been a movement uh, in Congress to create a separate account for Ohio replacement and talk of maybe throwing other things in there as well, like the, uh, while we're doing the Ohio and the bomber, the Air Force is also planning a program to recapitalize the Minuteman III ICBMs. Should we have a separate account for this? Does it make a difference? Well, I mean, I think it, it you know, could make a difference in the sense of, 
I mean, one of the, the issues, in, I mean, I think in, in general, we don't, you know, we, we, the services compete with themselves first for, I mean, you know, within it. We don't, we don't, we're not good at doing cross-service sort of comparisons and, and uh, you know, so I think, and, and making cross-service trade-offs, right? So I think, you know, to the extent that you, that having a single account could help with that, um, you know, I think that, that, that's probably to the good. You know, on the other hand, it's a, it's a little hard because some of them, I mean, it's the bomber, for example, it's not like these are all, you know, the bomber has multiple roles. It's not all, or even really primarily, arguably nuclear related, right? So, you know, you want to be making trade-offs with other, you know, it's not clear that that's always the right trade-off either between bombers and, and SSBNs, for example, right? So, um, I, I, I guess I'm not, I don't have strong views on whether that's a, that, that would be a helpful thing or not. Tina, do you think we're, getting into a period where we're going to have intense inter-service rivalry over competing programs? <laughs> Since we have had services, there's been intense inter-service <laughs> rivalry. <laughs> um, this is just part of the game. This is part of what happens in defense, and the, the civilians and military leadership will ultimately make the call about what their priorities and present those priorities within the constraints that they have to the Congress. And That'll continue, and we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, both platforms are important, uh, but that is the challenge of the senior leadership of the department, and I am confident that, uh, that they will continue to make judgments based on their own policies. All right. Question in the back of the room. Hi, uh, Kevin Wensing. Uh, on Friday, everybody knows uh, one of our NATO allies was attacked in an act of war. The G20 is meeting right now. What can we do to, uh, so the United States doesn't have to carry the entire load, right, to get our NATO allies, other allies, to spend more on defense so they can do their share? All right. Who wants to take that? And, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'll just, uh, um, hi, Kevin. Um, this has been... Uh, again, an issue for the United States for some period of time, the, the level of defense spending for the NATO allies and the, uh, quite frankly, in past, they have become used to our um, coming to the rescue is too strong, but they've been very heavily reliant on our uh, partnership. And so there's an opportunity for those nations to obviously take a look at and review where they are. I think, um, uh, France is in deep shock uh, right now, and the president uh, will work closely with um, all leaders across the globe on it. But again, it will, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to uh, make, for, uh, make good on our commitments, but this is again a part of the reality that we started to talk to at the very beginning of this conversation, which what's the right level of defense spending for ourselves, and now, you know, Kevin, you raised the, what's the right amount of spending and appropriate structure of their forces, they're gonna have to decide. Any other thoughts? Uh, you know, I would just, I guess, point out that, um, you know, since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you have begun to see, you know, in, in some European nations, sort of a recognition that they need to spend more on defense. Um, some have begun doing it, some have made commitments that hopefully they will make good on. Uh, I'm not holding my breath that this is going to sort of sweep the continent. Um, but, I mean, I do think that, look, the, ch the challenge is, that, you know, that when, when we were growing their de our defense budget, they were cutting theirs, and when we were cutting our defense budget, they were cutting theirs. So uh, it's not clear to me to what extent, you know, there's a, a response to what we do. 
Um, and I think that you know our members of Congress and uh, the Department of Defense and the President will continue to make these arguments that Europe has to spend more on its own defense. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of this burden is going to fall on us, um, and, and that's not going to change. I think the question is whether we accept that or not. I'll take the easy way. I don't think I need to add to those two eloquent <laughs> answers. All right. Other questions? Sir, in the front. Hi, Ryan Tepperman. Uh, I think there's been a growing sense that a lot of our traditional military advantages we've had since the end of the Cold War have been eroding in the various domains. Um, near competitors like Russia or China, their capabilities are seen as growing relative to our own and the proliferation of advanced conventional munitions in places like Syria has made it harder for us to do things we want to do. As I think General Dempsey made clear a couple of years ago when he testified before Congress about a no-fly zone. Um, part of what's led us to this predicament is undoubtedly uh, having to do with the budget and the process of acquisitions we go through to field our system. So, Curious from the panelists, um, what problems still extend do you think need to be dealt with in order for us to uh, regain superiority in a number of these areas? Yeah, thoughts on that? I mean, I mean I'll frame it slightly differently. Does the budget instability and uh, uh, the potential of a new administration coming in, does that give you an opportunity to really rebalance how we're investing defense dollars and change the capabilities we're investing in? Uh, to regain some advantage in areas where it's eroded. Well, I guess the only thing I'd really, I guess, add is I, I think the, um, you know, we were in a position where we were so dominant um, and had such a lead that it was really not, not really sustainable. I mean, I think once, you know, I mean, and, and I think we, you know, we, the budget instability and, and the budget downturn has certainly played a part. I mean, I, and, and, and it will play a part going forward to some extent, because obviously there's a lag between when you're actually you know, spending the money and actually getting stuff into the field. So I think that certainly plays a part. But I think there's also a big part of it is just it's sort of inevitable at some point that um, you, know, you lose that, you know, the gap is going to narrow when you're, when you're in the lead. And, and these other countries like China has a lot of money to spend on this. So I think to some extent that's, it's, it's unavoidable. But again, the, obviously the stability doesn't help. Instability doesn't help. From a SASC perspective, uh, looking at the way DOD is investing its money, what do you think? Yeah, I guess I would just make the point that I, you know, I'm sure the budget doesn't help, but um, you know, the diffusion of, of advanced military technology to more and more state and non-state actors, I think, is a secular trend that's been happening for some time, and that'll continue uh, regardless of what we're spending or not spending. Um, I mean, to me, I would bring it back to just how we're conducting acquisition now, um, you know, and if I can, you know, sort of blow the NDA's horn here, I think, you know, many of the changes that we've tried to put into, uh, that the committee has tried and the Congress has tried to uh, enact in this year's defense authorization bill um, are specifically trying to respond to that problem that you've raised. Um, how, do we, how do we develop capability faster? How do we get it into the field faster and upgrade it as we go, uh, rather than trying to develop, you know, the perfect weapon system over 18-year cycles? Um, how do we reach beyond uh, sort of traditional defense industry and, and tap into other sources of innovation in the country, uh, you know, through uh, 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 the commercial side? I mean, these are all things that I think this year's defense bill really does make an impact uh, if the department uses those authorities. Uh, our hope is that they will. Um, they're there for the taking. Um, whether we spend more or uh, continue to spend what we are spending, 
I think if we just continue to do uh, acquisition the way that we have been, I think this problem is going to get worse, not better. So I, I actually agree very much with Chris, and I think uh, the a great example of where there's uh, been energy, so to speak, in the, is in the uh, space realm and how uh, commercial companies are getting uh, very active uh, in that uh, investment in that area for for their for military purposes. We have our our reasons for wanting them in, but they also have their commercial interests. So, so that's been a creative area. There have been failures there, uh, in, as there are always in space. It's a very tough environment, but that's one area where I think we have a desperate uh, need for reinvestment. Uh, the administration took some effort to do that, but again, I think the commercial, uh, commercial industry, uh, Elon Musk, for example, is a great example. Somebody, an entrepreneur who's taken some risk there. So, um, so that's one area. The other area where we could, I think, we need to focus is what the Army is doing and, and some of their major programs. They just uh, had the JLTV obviously awarded, but what are the types of programs that they're interested in that will uh, promote uh, their overall aims and helping them become more mobile, uh, more agile? We were talking earlier about the MRAP program, and while that was important for the period of time we were there. We spent enormous amounts of money on that program for the right reason, uh, but that was a huge investment, and now the Army's got to figure out what they want to do. So I think commercial companies have a lot to offer. With some of the reforms that the NDAA has put to play in place, I hope, as you do, Chris, that the department will embrace uh, those new rules uh, of the road, if you will, and, and help really finance some of the key areas uh, for the uh, services. Okay. Sorry. John Harper with National Defense Magazine. Uh, my question is for all of you. Um, to what extent do you think that renewed concerns about Russia will influence the DOD's FY17 budget request uh, in terms of capabilities that will be invested in or even on a programmatic level? Thank you. All right. So Russia's influence on FY17 request. Who wants to start? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab. I, um, you know, how it translates into programmatics to me remains to be seen. Um, I do believe that there is, um, you know, a lot of focus on you know the, the the Russia question, so to speak, at the department. I mean, you've heard uh, General Dunford when he was up for his confirmation hearing, as well as General Milley and um, some of our other senior military leaders, all identify Russia as what they believe to be the greatest threat to the United States. Uh, we can debate that, but uh, I think that that is just sort of interesting as to how they're thinking about this. And um, my assumption is they're also thinking about how they build their programs and their budgets, um, you know, around that assessment of that threat. So, you know, for me specifically, you know, remains to be seen what FY17 brings. But uh, I, mean, I can assure you that this is something they're very much wrestling with. The only thing else I guess I would add is, I, you know, there's obviously been this for quite a few years now, this notion of the rebalancing to Asia and the Pacific, and to the extent that people are now, or in the last couple of years, have been more focused on Europe, or refocus at least to some extent on Europe, that I think that has implications for that, as well as, and, and, and more specifically, the, the um, balance between the Army and ground forces and, and the air and, uh, and naval forces as well. So I think how that, you know, how you'll be able to, it's very difficult in terms of the age rebalancing to ever kind of see what's kind of happening and to really measure it, but I think it, it presumably will have some impact. 
So, Tina, your thoughts having you know, been the controller and mm -hmm. part of that budget uh, building and budget review process, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what do you think uh, is going on in the Pentagon right now? And how much room is there uh, to shift for the PB-17 requests that will come out in February? It's not just with Russia, but what just happened in Paris as well. Um, it, it was my certainly my experience. Uh, I was uh, the controller at the time where we switched. Uh, uh, we moved uh, Secretary Rumsfeld went out and Secretary Gates came in. And that's a great example of how you can, the, the department can shift quickly when it wants to. Um, Secretary Gates came in. Uh, very quickly and had clear priorities for what he wanted to do. We were right in the middle of, if you will, closing up the budget. I mentioned MRAP, but there were other uh, associated things that he wanted to do related to our posture uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and so we were able to do that. So the, I have great confidence in the department. The military is expert at uh, taking a mission and getting it done. It does cause a lot of people many, many long hours. Uh, the systems of the department to help uh, in accounting are well known and uh, difficult. But my sense of it is that, and uh, Secretary Carter is a very bright man, as we all know. He is clearly making an impact, I am certain, uh, depending upon what he sees as the emerging threat, and well, there will be big shifts in dollars, uh, who knows, they could, uh, but there are many tools and I have great confidence that they are very seriously uh, and intently uh, looking at, at the uh, upcoming request. All right, other questions? Sir, over here. Um, this is a, just a follow-up of a question whether allies should be spending more and the answers that were given. Uh, my my uh, question is, is it really worthwhile for the allies like France or Britain or anyone else uh, or all the way to Poland and Czechoslovakia to spend any more money than they're already doing in their defense? Because if they were to face Russia, uh, if the Russians really wanted to take the whole of Georgia, they would have, but they didn't for some strategic reasons. The same thing in Ukraine. They took only part of it, and uh, if they wanted the whole of Ukraine, they would have, and the confrontation would have been with the United States and Russia, not Ukraine or not Georgia, because they don't have any capabilities, really. So given that, they're just wasting money. They should be under a U.S. umbrella and wait till they're taken over or not taken over. Isn't that a better approach? So do we have a... a well, I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I would say that, I mean, I, I don't think it's, you know, certainly during, during the Cold War, our, our, our NATO allies had enormous capabilities. I mean, they're capable of having great capabilities. Uh, and the Russian military... Uh, in, in many ways has obviously improved uh, in recent years, but it's not the military uh, that it was back during the Cold War either. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think I would probably reject the notion that, that what Europe does has no influence and no bearing on deterring or shaping Russian behavior. And I think it's also a question of them using, having capabilities that have some ability to project power into other parts of the world like Syria and Iraq as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not going to make an argument on behalf of allies spending less money. Um, I think we, we obviously want them to spend more money. I think the key question for us is not whether they do or whether they don't. Uh, it's 
it's, it's addressing the reality that even if they do, there is still a significant uh, role for the United States to be playing. I mean, for exactly the point just made, um, what kinds of capabilities are they investing? You know, are they capable of, of, of uh, you know, leading a fight that they need to get there and that needs to be helped, uh, that they need to be enabled once they're there? Um, I think we've seen examples of that even with our most capable allies. So uh, to me, I think the, the real question is the recognition that has to happen that uh, whether these allies are spending more or not, you know, there's a leadership role that the United States has to play and a willingness to address these problems um, that is inevitably going to require more of us than, frankly, I think a lot of people are willing to countenance right now. When could we do a better job of coordination with our European allies in particular? Well, I mean, one area that you've heard quite a bit about over the last few days is obviously our commitment uh, uh, to sharing intelligence. and. And other capabilities, uh, cyber capabilities are available. Um, so there are many things that we can do, uh, whether we have a buildup like we did during the Cold War, maybe uh, too far to think about. But, uh, but I, the points about an active accountability with our allies in terms of their own defense, I think it's critical we do measure that by, as Chris was talking about, in spending. But, uh, but I think we have to insist on it. Tom Dickinson, a retired DOD. Um, a question about the budget planning and formulation process. Would there be any efficiencies or savings to be gained in looking at a kind of a thorough revamping and updating of the POM PBS, PPBS process? Mm. <laughs> so you've lived that. Uh, of course there would be. Uh, the question is um, how much time and energy and effort do you want to put into that? I mean, there have been improvements uh, to it, but to expect that the department's going to run like a major corporation in terms of its, uh, its systems and accountability, that's, that's kind of difficult. Uh, it would certainly help, uh, but again, I, I may be a bit too far to think about it at the moment. Steve, from an OMB perspective, uh, having been part of this. Do you see improvements that the Pentagon could be making to the planning, programming, budgeting, execution system, or is it, you know, it's not perfect, but it's about the best it could be? Well, I mean, I, I, uh, Tina knows far, far better than I do. I mean, I, th I think the, um, uh, I mean, I will say, I mean, you know, we're, I, mean, I, I worked at OMB, and uh, in my role I was working with, with not just DOD, but DOE and, and uh, State Department and uh, VA and other areas. Um, and you know, DoD has. I mean, it's it's far from perfect, but it has a pretty pretty robust uh, uh, planning and budgeting system, uh, especially looking into the uh, into the out years. Um, so, you know, could it be improved? I'm sure it could be improved. I think one thing that um, this is at at a much higher level, but um, you know, I think you could make a case for um, if we're going to have caps in the future. Having you know, we for briefly had security caps that had defense in with international affairs and VA. And Homeland Security, I think that, you know, that's, I think that was probably actually helpful in, in helping people think through uh, various roles of different, you know, tools in our national security toolbox. But, and, and so that might be something that could be incorporated in the future. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but, uh, <laughs> but I understand the perspective from an OMB perspective. Uh, um. All right. Question here. Thank you. I'm Jenny Park with the USA Journal. Uh, 
reduce of the defense budget uh, uh, will how affect uh, this security threat on the Korean Peninsula? Is North Korean Kim Jong Un may have a misjudgment of this issue? Can you comment on this? Yeah. So, any thoughts on uh, you know we haven't really we've discussed uh, Syria, what's going on in the Middle East. We've discussed Russia, what's going on in Eastern Europe. Haven't talked too much about the Pacific or Korea in particular. How do you think that that's playing into the defense budget debate now? I think it's having a huge impact. I mean, there's uh, programs that we won't get into, but I think there's a there's a real sense of a need to respond to what uh, is perceived to be a growing threat on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, you have a leader who seems to wake up every other month and execute another senior member of his family. There's a sense of um, terrific uh, unpredictability about what that regime um, is up to. Um, but in terms of the, the threat and the, the military capability, long range, um, you know, ICBMs, increased nuclear stockpile, uh, et cetera, you know, I think the uh, commander of PACOM as well as the U.S. Forces commander in Korea um, both have testified that that's the thing in the Asia-Pacific region that keeps them up at night um, and the thing that is their greatest threat. Um, and I think there are programmatic changes that are happening in the Department of Defense to respond to it. All right. in the back. Uh, I'm Sebagatullah, Georgetown University. Uh, after the horrible Paris attacks, uh, ISIS will definitely uh, make its case on it and try to recruit uh, people in places like Afghanistan. So uh, we see that there is a declining support for government of Afghanistan, and I'm not hearing since morning anything about Afghanistan. Don't you think that's still an important issue to follow with and be reflected in budget, defense budget? Well, yeah, so Afghanistan, we haven't talked much about. That's you know, the biggest component of overseas contingency operations funding is for operations in Afghanistan. Um, what, do you, what do you guys think is likely to happen there in the coming years? Can we predict it all? Well, I, mean, I guess the only thing, well, I mean, I guess one comment I would make is that I think that is an area that is clearly, I think, fits within pretty much everybody's criteria for, for uh, overseas contingency operations. So I don't think that's something where the Delta is going to depend a lot on, I mean, it's, it's sort of a policy-driven uh, question is how much we should be spending there. The, the, the uh, BCA doesn't really limit that kind of spending. So I think that's, and I think that's, that's good and healthy. Obviously, it's a very complicated uh, <coughs> picture there, not a super optimistic um, one right now either. Any other thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, what I would say is simply that um, we've been involved in Afghanistan for 14 years. Um, people can argue about how it's gone, but I think that what we, what we have seen are considerable security gains. You now have a government that is, a, uh, is an eager partner of the United States, I think, that led the way in really arguing uh, on behalf of maintaining a U.S. security presence in the country. And, you know, what we're talking about are, are pretty small numbers, particularly relative to the numbers that we have had there. Um, Budgetarily, it's not nothing, but again, I think it's, it's almost a rounding error in the scheme of where we were uh, in terms of spending in Afghanistan for uh, past years. Um, to me, I think the question is, you know, for that money and that presence, um, you know, are, are we willing to accept the risk of not doing it? Um, and my feeling is that we've seen this movie before. We've seen it in Afghanistan, and we saw it quite recently in Iraq. 
Um, so, so arguing over a few thousand troops here, or, um, some money there, I mean, it's, it's a lot, don't get me wrong. Um, but in terms of uh, weighing against the risk of uh, you know, a deterioration of the security of the situation, destabilization of the government, and unwinding all the gains that we've made there after 14 years, um, I'm, I'm almost surprised that we're having that conversation. All right. One last question before we wrap up here. I'll give you a chance here. Henry Newsom, Secor Holdings. There's been a lot of talk today um, among you and among the audience about both Russia and European defense spending, NATO defense spending. Uh, the conversation seems to oscillate between resignation that it won't change and they won't approach their 2% targets and maybe hope that they will. Uh, what measures beyond cajoling but short of expulsion from the alliance might get the European allies closer to 2%? Any thoughts? Uh, I mean, we have had, uh, I've been engaged in these discussions in the past. Um, Look, I think they are having some very serious discussions right now with the G20. And uh, we'll have to evaluate with their global partners what is necessary to protect them from a future attack. This was really unprecedented and not something I think that they're likely very soon to forget when it comes down to deciding how they're going to focus their budgets and their national priorities. So um, it's really, you know, two, whether it's 2% or whatever the level is, I just think that there's probably a level of seriousness today on this question uh, that they perhaps have not had in, a, in a, some time. If I could, yeah, just, it's a point I should have made earlier, but it was made earlier. I think it needs to be underscored in the context of this question. I'm not sure, I think 2% is, you know, what we talk about and we should focus on. I mean, to me, you know, the, the bigger question is what are they spending that money on? Um, I think Greece hit 2% at one point, but it was for all the wrong reasons. Um, there are other countries that are, uh, you know, well, I mean, there are other countries that have, you know, their, their, their armies are, you know, sort of large conscription, um, you know, they're spending significant amounts of their defense budget on personnel issues. Um, I, I think the, the more fruitful approach, rather than threatening to throw people out of the alliance, would be, and then, you know, this has been happening, but I think really trying to find a way to, to, you know, to increase that focus of what are they getting from the, for the money that they are spending? How are they structured? How can they be more interoperable with us uh, and other allies? I mean, to me, that, that feels like the right focus. Um, you know, all the while, though, focusing on the need for, for greater spending, which is important. I think the right kind of spending is you know, arguably more important. So, Steve, I'll let you have the final word. Let's make this a little broader. Is spent, defense spending as a percent of GDP, is that even the right metric to be looking at? Yeah, it, just in general? Or just in general, but also for as applied to our data. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a perfectly fine measure to look at if you're looking at what it is, you know, burden on, burden on one's economy. Uh, so I think that's, you know, it's a useful measure for that. It's not a particularly useful, useful measure in and of itself for how much you should be spending because obviously you want to look at the threats that are out there but you know I mean realistically you probably kind of want to look at at both because you, because uh, deciding how much to spend on defense is a mixture of looking at what the threats are out there and what you can afford so I think it has a place in discussions um, I don't I don't think you know, I certainly wouldn't argue that it would be the central measure you should be looking at but it's not to say it's never relevant all right 
Okay, I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us today, uh, and thank all of you.